Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. All right, children, you may go to Children's Church, and as they're leaving, I'm going to explain a video. We know the people that were interested in that bottom of the barrel thing, they're like, no, look at all those kids, not doing it. Too many. Too many. We're going to show a video. We, next week, we are actually finishing the Luke series. Uh, I'm going to do something similar to word association really quick. I'm going to ask you a question. You yell out your answer right away and don't think about it. How many months do you believe we have been in the book of Luke? I swear. I'm going to throw... Uh, no, it's like five to six. Go through the whole book of Luke. What a wonderful job. Good job, everybody. Give yourself a round of applause for hanging in there. Go ahead. All right. As we wrap up, my hope is that we get towards the end. We start kind of pulling back in the back end of this or the front end of this series a little bit. So we kind of get the big picture. So we have a video. There's part one today, part two next week. This one is going to be chapters one through nine or one through ten kind of summarizing that, and the next week we'll go through uh, what is left, and so we'll have a pretty good idea of the big idea of Luke. Next week will be the last sermon in Luke, and then we're starting into our next series, so take a look at this video. The Gospel According to Luke. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author. And there are internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God and Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. The book's design is fairly clear. There's a long introduction that sets up the stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Then in chapters 3 to 9, Luke presents a robust portrait of Jesus and his mission in his home region of Galilee. After that, the large midsection of the book is Jesus' long journey to Jerusalem, which leads to the story's climax, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem leading up to his death and resurrection, which then leads on into the book of Acts. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half of Luke's gospel. The extended introduction tells in parallel the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. So you have this elderly priestly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young unmarried woman, Mary and Joseph. They both receive an unlikely divine promise that they're going to have a son. Both promises are fulfilled then, as John and then Jesus are born, and both parents sing poems of celebration. Now these poetic songs, they're filled with echoes from the Old Testament psalms and prophets, showing how these children will fulfill God's ancient promises. 
But these poems also preview each child's role in the story to follow. So John is the prophetic messenger promised in the Torah and the prophets who's going to prepare Israel to meet their God. And Jesus, he's the messianic king promised to David who's going to bring God's reign over Israel and God's blessing to the nations just like he promised to Abraham. After this, Mary brings Jesus to the Jerusalem temple for his dedication, and two elderly prophets, Anna and Simeon, they see Jesus and they recognize who he is. And Simeon sings his own song, a poem inspired by the prophet Isaiah. He says, this child is God's salvation for Israel, and he will become a light to the nations. So with all this anticipation, the story moves forward into the next main section where Luke presents Jesus and his mission. He sets the stage with John's renewal movement at the Jordan River where he's calling a new, repentant, recommitted Israel into existence through baptism. He's preparing for the arrival of God's kingdom. And then Jesus appears as the leader of this new Israel and he's marked out by the spirit and the voice of God from heaven. He is the beloved son of God. After this, Luke follows with the genealogy, and it traces Jesus' origins back to David, then back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam from the book of Genesis. Luke's claiming here that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel who will bring God's blessing, but not only to Israel, the family of Abraham. He is here for all the sons of Adam, for all humanity. After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here. He's the messianic king bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman or a man who has a skin disease or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. 
And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Now, Jesus' radical kingdom vision, his claim to divine authority, it starts to generate resistance and controversy, especially from Israel's religious leaders. His outreach to questionable people, it's a threat to their religious traditions and their sense of social stability. And so they start accusing Jesus of blaspheming God, of being a drunk and mixing with sinners. And so this section culminates in a new revelation of Jesus' mission to his disciples. He says that Yes, he is the messianic king and that he's going to assert his reign over Israel by dying in Jerusalem, by becoming the suffering servant king of Isaiah 53 who dies for the sins of Israel. And then the shocking idea, it gets explored in the next story as Jesus goes up a mountain with three of his disciples and he's suddenly transformed in front of them. They're enveloped in this cloud of God's presence who announces, this is my chosen son. And then Moses and Elijah are there, the two other prophets who encountered God's presence and voice on a mountain. And Luke tells us that they're talking together about Jesus' exodus that he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Now that Greek word exodus, it's a clear reference to the exodus story. Luke is portraying Jesus here as a new Moses who will lead his newly formed Israel into freedom and release from the tyranny of sin and evil in all of its forms, personal, spiritual, and social. And that's going to lead us into the second half of the book. But for now, that's the first half of the Gospel according to Luke. All right, for you visual learners, was that helpful at all? Give me a nod. Okay, good, 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 yeah. Awesome. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and open to Luke chapter 24, verses 35 through 49. As you are turning there, um, I'm going to kind of give us a little recap of last week, very brief, just because it follows uh, very closely this next section of text. Um, Some would call it the section of the road to Emmaus. Two men are walking along a road. It's the same crew every week, isn't it? (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right, so there's two guys on a road. They're going to Emmaus. It's about a seven-mile journey, and somewhere along there, they're talking about the things that have happened with Jesus, and then Jesus himself appears with them and starts walking with them, but uh, it is hidden from them intentionally that he is Jesus. And so he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, the Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, what about him? And essentially then, they go on to say, you've got to be the only person in this entire area that doesn't know what's happening. And he's like, go on. So they go on to explain all the things of Jesus and their questions about it, their excitement about it, everything that's been reported to them. And then uh, Jesus goes back and says, hey, I'm going to teach you guys uh, what the Old Testament says, the, uh, the Mosaic Law and the prophets say about this Jesus. And he goes through and teaches them 
uh, what it says. And then he concludes essentially with, you should have expected this was happening. He said, I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And after three days, I'm going to raise uh, to life. Like, he said these things were going to happen. You knew there would be difficulties along this way. He said that that was going to happen. We should have known. And then he, there's this interesting part where he pretends like, he, like Jesus is going to like keep walking and they got to take a left to go who knows where. And, uh, and they're like, well, it's late. Like, hey, sir, why don't you stay the night with us? He's like, sure. So he goes to their house and um, at, at dinner time, he breaks the bread and hands it to him. And at that moment, as Jesus is breaking the bread, as we've seen um, as an illusion of elsewhere, uh, they're able to, re- they, they see that this is Jesus the Christ and their minds are blown and Jesus disappears. And it says that uh, within the hour, they're on their way back to Jerusalem now. And that's where our section of text picks up. Luke chapter 24, verses 35 through 49. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself suddenly was standing among them. He says, peace be with you, he says. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they'd seen a ghost. So stop there for a second. Um, This is what's happening. They're in a room uh, where Jesus is not. Uh, The two guys from Emmaus are then explaining everything that had happened. And then Jesus appears among them. And it makes sense that they'd be afraid because if I was standing here uh, preaching and Jesus appeared here, two things would happen. First, we'd be scared to death. And second, I would go sit down. And he says, peace be with you because they're obviously startled. They think they've seen a ghost, which is important here. There have been heresies that have been taught that Jesus... His body stayed dead. It was a spiritual only resurrection. And what the Bible teaches is a bodily, physical resurrection along with his spirit. And that uh, that is who Jesus was as he then walked around after his resurrection. Actual bodily resurrection. So they are frightened. We've seen a ghost. Why do they think it was a ghost? Because they saw Jesus die. And he is now raised from the dead and appearing in front of people, scary-like. He says, why are you frightened, he asks. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies. Jesus is saying, I have a body, physical, bodily resurrection, as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why would he show them his hands and feet? Nails in his hands and feet. Perfect. Good job, everybody. 41. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Now, they're in this specific text, in verse 41, I think the NLT, uh, the, the translation, sorry, the, the ESV's translation does a little bit better job leading us into what, what's actually happening there. It says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. As while they still, and while they still disbelieved for joy, And we're marveling. They disbelieved for joy. Not necessarily out of fear, not necessarily out of confusion, for joy. And so, uh, what what is disbelieving for joy? Here's an example. Not a good example, but it's one that will help us wrap our mind around it. Uh, Imagine we're here, and I'm like, hey, this is going to be like the Oprah Winfrey show here. Um, Thank you for coming. Everybody's getting a gift today. Everybody gets Teslas! And you're like, whoa, no way. No, we're getting Teslas? I'm like, go outside. You're like, no, Brian, no way. Go outside. 
and you guys go out there, and there's 65, 70 Teslas all parked out there somehow, right out there. You'd be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this. You are in disbelief over joy, like there's no way this could be true. The, the, uh, the, the implications of this being true are so wonderful and exciting and insane. This is crazy. Disbelief for joy. And so uh, at this point, after the hands and feet and touch this, and I am, I am Jesus, I am physical, here I am, and they begin to talk and have that conversation, they are in disbelief for joy, as we would be as well. Then he asks them, do you have anything to eat? Now this next section of text, watch what's actually said here. This is exactly what we would do too, and it's very embarrassing. So they're in disbelief for joy, right, because of the implications of this. Like they're not even, they haven't even connected all the implications. Hundreds and hundreds of implications are happening if this is really the risen Jesus Christ, right? And he's like, he's like do you have anything to eat? They're like, well, well yeah. I mean, even if they didn't, right, they'd be like, um, like, you know, and they would find something. The risen Christ is here. And then it says they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Many commentators make note that, of course, Luke would make mention of how the fish was cooked. It was broiled fish. And then check this out. And he ate it as they watched. All right, so keep flowing with this. This is real stuff. Jesus just appeared. There he is. Their disbelief for joy. Do you have food? Yeah, here's some fish. And he's eating it, and they're like. <laughs> here's part of the thing. Keep in mind, like let's not uh, divorce ourselves from the reality of this text, that this is the risen Jesus Christ, and they know it now. They know it now. And now they're like, a ghost is the only, you know, practical uh, thing that this could be, and they're like, no, it really is Jesus, and then he's physically eating and chewing and swallowing that over and over and over again. Jesus is here. Then he said, "When I was with you before, I told you that every I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled." Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it is written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. Does that sound familiar? I tried to give you a hint like five minutes ago. That's the same process that the two guys from the road uh, to Emmaus needed. And this is the process. They're like, their minds are blown. They can't connect all the dots. They're trying to realize all the implications. And Jesus goes, why are you surprised? I told you this would happen. And he goes through the Mosaic Law and the prophets and the Psalms and teaches them all these things that were teaching about what would happen to Jesus, particularly, in particular, this death and resurrection. Because they're just, their minds can't comprehend this. And Jesus is saying, this was all foretold. Can you imagine making those connections in the moment? Like, not only did we like, believe the prophesied one was here and he's preaching and claiming to forgive sins, saying for, for, to forgive sins, but we're like, it's hard to see if the sins are really forgiven because that's not necessarily something you can see sometimes. But then he's, he's healing people. People who could not walk could walk. People who could not see could see. People who were dead and in a box came out of the box. He was walking on water. All these things have got to be so difficult to be able to wrap, our, wrap their minds around that he goes and he teaches. These are the things that would say would happen. So of course then now these things are happening. In particular, I'd be handed over to the Romans. I would be crucified. 
I would be dead, I would be buried, and I'd rise to new life. And here I am. Why are you surprised? Verse 47, it was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is going around, finding people on roads to Emmaus, going to his 12 disciples, going to others, teaching and undoubtedly over and over again about these scriptures that were prophesied, pointing to the Messiah, what he would look like, what he would do, the things he would say, how he would accomplish it, and the death and resurrection in those passages, and that he is that one. He goes on uh, to show himself to over 400 people, 500 plus people, if I take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, it says this. I pass on to you what is most important and what had also been passed on to me. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Over and over again, just as the scriptures have said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Now some of you may think, now wait a second. It would be interesting if Jesus had showed himself to like three people or like, or one person, you know, maybe they're hallucinating, maybe they ate some bad Mexican the night before, things are awry, whatever's going on, but then there's 10, 10 people, no, 20, no, 100, no, 300, 400, 500 people. And now we're like, that's a big claim, right? We'd all have to agree that's a big claim, that Jesus rose from the dead and then showed himself to 500 people, because there's no such thing as a mass hallucination like that. So Jesus would have actually had to have done that. And so we would ask, well, the Bible claims that, right? The followers of Jesus claim that, but are there times where people who weren't followers of Jesus, but also historians, did they agree that Jesus had done that? Because if four or 500 people had seen him, historians had to have documented that, whether they believed in Jesus or not, right? And in fact, we, they do have historians of the time that were not followers of Jesus document this saying that Jesus did raise from the dead and that he did show himself to over 400 people. Jesus rose from the dead and he showed himself to people. And when he showed himself to people and he was talking to people, he was saying, I'm the promised Messiah. Why are you surprised I'm here? And in our simple little minds, we're like, because we saw you get murdered on the cross. That's why we're surprised. And Jesus in some way, I think what happens to us is we doubt the power. Because if we know, but then we doubt the power, that's a difficult conundrum we find ourselves in. And although these people, as they began to realize Jesus did say all these things, he did prophesy these things, the Old Testament did say these things were going to happen, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to die, he was going to be buried, he's going to raise, not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the third day, but not the fourth day, on the third day. And then he does it. This is the Messiah. Verse 49, and now I'll send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with the power from heaven. We see that a lot in these texts. 
right? At the end of the Gospels, we see this idea of Jesus saying, now go and be witnesses into the world, but wait here until the Holy Spirit comes. I'm going to read you two sections out of John. One's chapter 14, one is chapter 16. John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also live. And when I am raised to life again, you will know that I am... that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's this Holy Spirit advocate thing. Let's go to John chapter 16, verse 5. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is, a- is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. What he just told you is, is some diff- difficult things in the text above, right? He's like, you guys are asking me, like, where are you going? You guys are just grieving that I'm going. Verse 7, this is important. Listen to this. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Verse 7, but in fact, it is best for you to go. That word best is a Greek word, uh, sumphero. It's to be profitable. I don't know if we have a word like this. I suspect somebody will email me later and say, you big goon. Yes, we do. But this word specifically is referring to, uh, it means profitable, but properly, it's a concurrence of circumstances, several events, several circumstances, combined in a way that brings you profit. Intentionally, this word's used because there's there's things that are happening, two things that are going to happen. Jesus is going to leave and the Holy Spirit is going to come, and those circumstances are a benefit to us. And so even though we may look at that, and we're like, how could that possibly be? We trust it because it's in the Word of God, that it's better that Jesus go and the Holy Spirit come, and that's the environment for which we live. Several times in Scripture we see Jesus speak of his leaving, and at some point he is met with listeners grieving which is not different than you and I, I do not believe. I'm going to paint with a really broad brush now, but I don't believe we'd be any different than that. I think that we would struggle with that same thing. We'd be thinking, if Jesus, if we had lived with Jesus and we had seen the good old days where uh, uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus walking on water, thousands of people fed with a small amount of food, water turned into wine, listening to Jesus exegete Old Testament scriptures about himself, watching a demon-possessed person be freed, watching the lame walk, the blind see, the sick healed, watching a family rejoice as Jesus raises their dead son out of the coffin, and we were able to walk with him and watch us, and and as we look at the the environment for which Jesus lived, there were always these times where people would be, uh, Jesus would would do his thing, he would would preach and teach, and he would heal, and people would be all caught up in the moment, they're like, where's Jesus? And Jesus is kind of taking off. He's headed up into the mountains to, to pray and be with the Father. And then he sees the people running after him. He has compassion. He comes back down and teaches more and teaches more with an authority not seen before, recognizable by people who know authority. And then for Jesus to say, it's better that I go, we'd be like, no, it's not. 
In fact, somebody once said that in the Bible, and Jesus was like, I swear, you say that again, get behind me, Satan. We would struggle with that same thing. We would think, if I was able to see that, walk with Jesus, I would not struggle in my faith. I think what we need to remember in these times where we struggle with that and, and, and struggle realizing that we live in a special time right now, where Jesus has gone and the Holy Spirit has come, we need to ask ourselves, where did Jesus go? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 says this. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus has gone, has entered heaven, sits at the right hand on the throne. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So yet us come boldly into the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will uh, find grace to help us when we need it most. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, this is important. It says, here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since there are already priests who offer gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. The reason for that is this. He's like, make sure you follow every instruction I gave you here because it is a shadow of what is in heaven with Jesus Christ being our high priest. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood for he is the one who mediates for us far, for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises that is where jesus was going to go take his rightful seat on the throne for the king of kings and the lord of lords to mediate for us as a high priest who understands our weaknesses and loves his children so much to lay his life down for us see many people claim to be willing to do this but jesus has proven this level of love for us he is now sitting in the highest of cosmic authority where nothing and no one can dethrone him, no matter who the governor is, no matter who the president is, no matter how powerful the United Nations is, no matter how scary Russia is, Jesus sits in the place of ultimate authority and not a sparrow falls to the ground without him knowing it. That's where Jesus was going. Is that better? That's better. But he said, he said I will not leave you as orphans. So how does that happen? He sends the Spirit. We're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit coming up, but I'll give you some key words to think about. The Holy Spirit comes to do what? Empower, seal, guide, lead, and convict. It goes on. Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifted, up his, lifted his hands to the heavens, and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, so while he is blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven, be in a cloud. So they worshiped him, and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy, and they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. So as Jesus is ascending in the Shekinah glory, 
ascending into heaven. He is raining down blessings on them. And that is the last look they see. That Shekinah cloud, that Shekinah glory is the same glory that Israel followed by day and turned into a pillar of fire by night for them. It was the same Shekinah glory on the mountain of transfiguration. It was the same Shekinah glory that Moses encountered on Mount Sinai. It was the same Shekinah glory that lay over the tabernacle and filled the temple. It was the same Shekinah glory that Ezekiel saw depart over the east gates. Then that same Shekinah glory comes and Jesus ascends into the heavens with it. There's a whole section of Acts that I wanted to bring together and show how this ends and then Acts takes a zoomed in look at this ascension thing, but we don't have time for it. So we can say that for next week and that's no problem. Two things happen, arguably three, but two things happen when people realize what's happening here. They worship and they witness. And they do it with joy. As we wrap up Luke, and next week's our last sermon on Luke, but this week as we wrap up this section, I hope that this truth, as we can kind of look, we got a video, I kind of summarized the bit, we're going to get more of the whole big picture tomorrow, I mean, <laughs> sorry, Sunday, that what we see is God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ to redeem his people back to himself. And as we are able to accomplish that and know that and know that the plan is based upon God coming to earth and saying, I will pay your sin debt. And we all are sitting under this reality that we are all in a massive uh, a place of massive debt that we cannot pay and able to make us reconciled with the Father. And so we are in need of the Savior. One thing we talked about last week is that there's one thing, no matter where you are, whether you are a murderer or you work with the children's ministry or you work in the trenches of youth ministry or you come up and preach on Sunday sometimes, we're eternal. And the reality of that is that there's heaven and hell. And the only way to be delivered from what we deserve, which is hell, is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and says, I will pay for that sin. I will expiate that sin. I will drink that cup of wrath. And your sins imputed to me so that you can stand blameless in the sight of the Lord. There's one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. In fact, we have a baptism this, this morning of somebody who's taken those steps. And so uh, CJ uh, is going to come up and do his baptism, and, and we'll close out the service with the song. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.